everyone. It's Monday after Thanksgiving weekend, and if you celebrated, I hope you had a wonderful, warm, and fulfilling holiday. We just had a Octoband giveaway, and we had more than 100 entries, and one lucky person got to win a free Octoband, and I'm very excited and thankful to Donna Newman Bluestein who helped make this happen. If you want to be involved and stay up to date on the next contest, then you can either like the Mind Your Body Facebook page or you can subscribe to the mailing list on www.mindyourbodydmt.com. And speaking of, I made some updates on my website. I am officially offering services in the form of dance movement therapy or mind body coaching. So if you've been listening to this podcast and you're curious and intrigued about the ideas we talk about here and you're thinking that it might be something really healthy and supportive for you, that is something that I am offering now. And I encourage you to check out the services portion of my website. You can find that in the menu on top and send me an email if it's something you'd like to talk about. I'm offering a free consultation for anyone who's interested. Additionally, I am also offering clinical supervision services for any professionals in the dance movement therapy field or anybody who is a healer, a therapist, caregiver, and you're looking to incorporate more of the body and movement and creative expression into your work. Feel free to check it out. Again, that's mindyourbodydmt.com. So on to today's episode, I had the opportunity to talk to this lovely couple living out in Guam right now. Their names are Steve and Connor, and they actually first met in 1988 at an American Dance Therapy Association conference in Baltimore. They most recently conducted a fascinating research project in Shanghai, and they will be sharing some details about that in this episode, which is exciting. But basically, physical storytelling is a technique that can help anyone go beyond words and really help them get in touch with the physical, bodily, felt sense of things that are going on with themselves, with a certain group of people, to investigate a social, emotional, or political topic as a researcher. There's so much more, and we'll hear all about it real soon. I will say that it took me quite a while to kind of catch on and really visualize what Connor and Steve were talking about, but uh, eventually clicked, and I'm hopeful that it will for you too, and I hope that you enjoy. This is Mind Your Body, a dance movement therapy perspective on the integration of our emotional, cognitive, physical, and spiritual aspects of our being into one more aware and whole existence. So what is physical storytelling and how is it used? Essentially, it involves a person presenting a story. In therapy, it would be the client. In supervision, it would be the dance therapist or uh, other the therapist, the supervisee. In a research project, it's the essential research team who has questions. So it can be applied in each one of those situations. Or in, uh, we've also done it at the end of conferences as a summary activity. 
So the teller is a, usually a single one person presenting some narrative about something they want to, to see. There's a role of a conductor who hears out that story and helps the person tell the story in some kind of organized way. And then there's a group of, a very small group of dancers who are either chosen by the conductor or the, the storyteller to perform that, that dance. And the dance is usually a, a short improvised piece based around a, a series of, of very simple interactive rules, or we call them improvisational scores. In each context, the conductor uh, finds the meaning. So in therapy, the dance doesn't have to be, I don't know, that well performed as a way to stimulate new ideas and new insights or new ways of moving forward. In supervision, the supervisor uses uh, the techniques as a way to help the supervisee see the, the situation in a different way and may replay the dance or may involve in the supervisee getting up and dance. In a research project, usually it's done as an arts-based research project, so there might be another uh, art response to the dances. Uh, at the end of a conference, it's more in a performance mode where one story would lead to another, lead to another. Okay, so let me just process that. So there's somebody who's coming up with a story or who wants to tell a story. And then they tell the story and then there's a conduct they, they pick a conductor after they tell the story or they pick a conductor to tell the story to. The conductor leads the whole event. So it would be one of us or it is one person leading. So it would be the supervisor, the therapist or you know, the facilitator at an event, whether it's a conference or whether it's, you know, a, a two-day training in practice. You know, there is a leadership that goes on with this central person, or in our case, sometimes the two of us, but um, somebody is kind of the main conductor that holds the space, holds the stories, holds the context of what we're in. So you're picking somebody who's kind of already uh, like in a clinical role or the mentor role or the therapist So it would be the other way around that. So the person isn't chosen. Usually the person chooses themselves. Or in Connors, in my case, we'll say we're conducting a uh, an event. We're offering supervision. So mm-hmm. we would be physical storytelling as the technique of the supervision or as a family therapist. So then I would be the one that would either enact or choose another uh, way to enact the, the story of difficulty in the family as a dance. So there is a lot to that role of the conductor. Now, anybody who's had experiences in playback theater will understand that they may practice playback theater as an actor for a long time, but they may not feel comfortable conducting for a number of years. So it's kind of um, something that you work your way into in terms of, you know, it is a leadership role that requires a certain sensitivity, a certain understanding of stories. If you've ever watched Jonathan Fox conduct, you know, he'll listen and he'll decide, okay, they're talking too long and he'll really condense it. And we used to have Christina conducting us a lot in Europe 
in mostly playback with a little bit of using physical storytelling st uh, forms in the warm-up. But she would, often things would be in a different language. We wouldn't hear what the storyteller said. She'd look at us and she'd give us a summary in English. It could be six words. And you're like, well, okay. So a lot of the learning was, you know, really through the body, no, you know, picking up the mood, the emotion, the, you know, feeling that was being invoked in the body. Mm -hmm. And that for me is where authentic movie comes into the practice is having that experience of going between mover and witness and then just allowing that to move through me and then take the improvisation to where it needs to go. Got it. So can you uh, share a story, not a story story, but a, an example of one time that you did this so we can get a little bit of a picture? Sure. And we left out one other part is that usually, even in a supervision or a therapy context, there's a, there's a colleague who is familiar with the form. So in a, in a research project or in a performance project, a small ensemble would be the central group of people. So we'd have dancers who are trained in improvisation, trained in physical storytelling in that can use the dance form as a way to offer a, a, an event that people can project on. So with that said, uh, we just got back from uh, Shanghai where um, we, we did a project with our uh, Chinese colleagues on um, essentially doing a research project using physical storytelling uh, to investigate what's it like to live in the contemporary world with the, the international tensions. Um, we're particularly interested in, in what universal, what, what are the human qualities that we all share, Chinese and American, and what, what would be the cross-cultural, what are the, the cross-cultural, or how would the Chinese approach this differently than uh, we in the West? So we took this on with two days, and then we had an invitation for, uh, to do a, a day's worth of training with dancers, uh, in which both Connor and I led the training, which was basically using creative movement and interaction, an introduction to something we call scores, which we'll get into in a little while, and then gradually introducing story, particularly for the Chinese, a story of everyday things, a story of things that were of interest to them, and we would dance those stories. On the second day, we introduced... Um, more of that, but when we finally got to the project, we introduced the idea of can we tell stories of what it would be like, what is it like for us uh, in the, the world of, I don't know, the U.S. politics and the U.S. versus China politics. And the stories were, were very successful, and what we found out is that we have to gingerly go ahead with political conversations in China. Because um, it's, it's a very different political world. So the stories that our Chinese colleagues told were less, shall we say, expressive or less filled with political uh, uh, implications. But once we danced, once we developed dances, we could see that they and we were all as involved with very uh, important emotional human themes of alienation and death and creativity and things like that. So... I'm happy to share a really quick example from that. And I told a story about 
probably get very teary about it, about being a scuba diver right now and seeing the coral bleaching that's going on with two degree temperature change in Fahrenheit that is bleaching coral. And once coral bleaches, basically it can starve to death. Sometimes it recovers, sometimes not. So I told this story. So after I told that, one of the Chinese women was so deeply moved that she expressed that I remember seeing my grandfather died and there was nothing I could do about it. So she was having a very strong personal story response to seeing my story being told. So, you know, it got into those issues of our mortality or what's happening in our environment around us that we all share that common connection and those common emotions, even if the story is different. Does that help? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, did she express that after? Was that in processing the story or was that something that she discovered through movement or you said yes? By viewing the story, she allowed her own story to unfold and be projected out there and, you know, whatever was quite relevant to her. And the interesting thing in China is they can't speak ill of their political leaders. They would get in deep trouble. So their stories tended to be a little bit of the personal nature or even a little bit more disconnected from the Americans because we had three Americans tell stories and ours were much more revealed, much more about ourselves. And that's what we have found when we work with Americans and probably Australians and New Zealanders, they can speak more about political situations and whatever is unraveling for them. And maybe in China, it's been more difficult to speak. And the end result of this, it, this was a, a series of stories over about four hours. We got a chance to videotape it and we took pictures of the stories. Uh, after each story, we, had artistic responses or poetic responses, both in, in Mandarin and in English, and are collecting them and are looking now for uh, basically what are the, the communication emotional themes that unite us. Uh, we were trying to get underneath the Internet response to our contemporary world, or the news response. Mm -hmm. You know, what are, what are more the human themes that are, are uniting us? And we, we think we've come up with this, but we're going to, uh, our Chinese colleagues and, and ourselves are going to be putting this together in a in a journal article where we can show the stories on. There'll be links to the story, and we'll show pictures and 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 look at some of the art responses. And the intention of this was to be a uh, an international project that just could give a reflection of what does it feel like to live in 2017 with threats of war mm -hmm. uh, and people trying to make sense of it. What do you think it is about physical storytelling that's uh, an approach that could achieve that goal that you were looking for about finding what unites us or finding the common thread among us? Like, what about the body and the movement? Well, I think we both feel strongly that body and dance improvisation, especially when it's well done, you know, can really hit on core metaphors. And we First of all, in the body, we always hold these polarities. You know, we hold all the feelings. And, and I mean, I think that's what's so beautiful about the body is it. And it can be projected on it. People can look at it and see, you know, whatever they're feeling with it. And, and it's not, you know, about the words. The words can kind of cut off the 
feeling or can only express a certain level. And you're talking about the physical, why, you know, what is dance, what does the body have to offer? And to go to Connor's um, example, and the story was from um, uh, a Chinese woman who, because in the bicultural part, uh, they couldn't, they weren't necessarily talking about themselves or their own political responses to the world. But she told about a friend who had um, was worried about her husband having an affair and about how this was uh, impacting on her 16-year-old son who was now having to take the exams. And in China, the 16-year-old exams are huge. We set the scar of a beginning, and a middle, and an end, meaning that uh, there was essentially a, a time of trust, a time of mistrust, and a time then of uh, the future, what this is going to be leading. That was the general way to fit the narrative into a dance. So when the dance developed, particularly with uh, Connor being the third dancer in this particular part, and she was having to hold the final form together, her body movement in combination with the other dancers communicated this physical felt sense of what's next after mistrust. This offered a movement metaphor that I certainly could relate to and many of the others in the audience. So uh, we're in a time of mistrust. We're in a time of what will the future offer? And no one knows the answer. And so I immediately had this feeling of, oh, my gosh, this is exactly like work, where I have to work side by side with people who have very different political ideals than I do. And there's a growing sense of mistrust and a growing sense of being out of control, almost like the, the runaway improviser, so to speak. And Connor's uh, dance in it uh, offered a physical feel of what that might be like. A physical um, feel to we, the audience? Uh, absolutely. The audience was with, with us. Now, what's interesting because of the physical feel, though we, <laughs> this was, was another interesting part of this project, we had asked for a smaller ensemble of very experienced dancers from uh, Shanghai, and there were so there was so much excitement about this. We ended up having about twenty, maybe thirty dancers. We had also asked that people be fluent in English, so we wouldn't have to worry so much with the translation. And there were probably only about a third of those who were very fluent in English, and several who didn't speak English at all. And the, my our Chinese colleague and, and us decided, well, heck with it. Let's just go with the energy. And it turned out that doing dances like this was far more uniting than it was separating in that the content of the story, though interesting enough to engage people, was only the beginning. And the, um, the dance itself united us. And it's more than just an understanding. It's a shared physical understanding. Yeah, because, you know, we were in this group with people whose language, you know, we didn't understand and they might not understand our language. But the body language, the movement language is so primary. It, you know, all of us have experiences no matter what culture we are. We've all been born of a physical mother, even if we've been adopted or abandoned or orphanaged, whatever. We all have had that experience. We have all had some movement touch experience in the beginning of our life. So it's all related to that. And you could, the feelings in the room were very powerful all that day. And we didn't necessarily share the verbal language. 
And one of the practices we do in introducing the form is I go out of the room. Steve gets a really simple story, usually about how I got there today or whatever. I mean, we try to start with simple stories with the idea that there's always something underneath that story that's bigger, richer, more personal to the person. And I just come in and I just come in and whatever movement impulse I have, I just respond to. And I mean, you know, I mean, it's kind of a party trick, too. But really, I'm going in there with the utmost respect for whoever might have told the story and just trusting my body in response to what I feel when I walk in the room. And we do that in purpose so that people know that you don't even have to know the story to feel the story. So and in that in then, that case, Steve, were you telling the story while? No, it's a total, complete, nonverbal uh, communication. So 10, 15 people hear the story. And the story I will conduct with a person who has something interesting to say. Uh, the only reason I introduce it as something simple, it's usually at the beginning and we need a warm-up activity. And Connor is out, not hearing the story. She comes in, has a short Im- movement improvisation, and then we open up for what did you see and look at the connections between people's physical response to the story and the actual story that is told. I have a great example. When we did a two-day workshop after the conference in Australia in 2007, uh, we built this up. So I did. I went out once. We sent two people out once. So three movers left the room. So one person told a story about returning to Melbourne for the first time after ages. She saw an old boyfriend. They connected. They sat by the river. And so she tells this, you know, it's a bit emotional. The three movers come in, a man and two women. So the man and the woman, they start to move. The third mover goes and grabs the blue scarf and starts to move it. And we're all sitting there going, (laughs) you know, far out. It's like she said later, she said, I just felt drawn. I just had to pull that scarf and I had to move it. And so here it was, the river and the, you know, couple having whatever relational issue they were sorting out or reconnecting or reconnecting and disengaging it was quite powerful Hmm. and that was with the dance therapy group so the sensitivity levels were able to pick up the form much quicker than some other groups we might have worked with but i think what we're trying to get at there's an we call it exquisite communication between a story and and the physical movers you open up the opportunity for the physical felt part of the story to be danced and the witnesses to witness it. And it opens up a whole different world. Usually the form is really very helpful in dealing with the kind of content that is really hard to talk about. There's multiple emotional realities that are going on at the same time that aren't clear. Or when you want to capture something that can be seen to be able to to take it to another level or another step. And the, the scores only help to make the physical part seen so it can follow along necessarily with the narrative of the stories. Can you explain the I scores? A, I have a good example about one of the scores. Okay. Because it'll make it more very concrete. We have a score called the journey score. And the journey score fits 
you know, anything in a person's life that could be a physical journey. So they move from this part of the country to another part of the country. It can be an emotional journey. It can be a journey about becoming something. And so when Steve and I were in Beijing a year and a half ago, we were working with two different groups of dance therapists that some of them had been further along in their training and some of them were still new to the training. And we did the journey score. Steve and I did it just because we, you know, had more experience moving together. And the first day, it was some story about her becoming a dance therapist. And did she say the mirror? Did that come up when I... So the journey was her, the journey of her becoming a dance therapist. And she was just at the end of her training. And she said she'd become quite reflective and inner focused. That was her story. Uh, it, in so many words. There mm-hmm. were a bit more in the, in the conducting of it. That was the summary that I offered. And then she chose, or I chose Connor to be her, the journeyer. And I became the journey that she could dance with. With the idea that she then could see her journey in all of the uh, improvisational interactions that we had. There's another part of the journey, which is she chooses where the journey starts in the room and where the journey ends. So she chose one part of the room further away from where we all were, and she ended the journey right in front of the mirror. So the dance, Connor and I were very close together most of the journey. So she would move one way, and I would either mirror it or counter it or or offer some resistance or some, some weight to it. And we ended up right in front of the mirror, and so Connor would be moving, and I would be using her mirror image as a way to to respond to her at the end. And the person who saw the story, as well as several of these people just essentially finishing their dance therapy training, could uh, uh, relate to or, or felt this is was like the reflection of themselves. They were sort of year two in their training. You know, basically she spoke about looking in the mirror and how potent that was, that whole thing about that reflection that when we're doing our dance therapy training, we really look in the mirror. The next day, I don't remember much of the story, but I have a follow-up on the story. Is Steve and I both did the journey, and there was, it was quite energetic. And in the very end, I ended up in the window standing. And one of the students in that room recently has started her training at Pratt, and she um, I congratulated her or something, and she sent messaged me that that image stayed with her and gave her the courage to go and pursue her study of dance therapy in America. So I thought, whoa, that's, that's a great. great story about follow-through of uh, the workshop. Wow, that's amazing. We weren't necessarily planning, oh, this is dramatic, so let's just do the, the a dramatic movement. It was the feeling in the room. Yeah, that was one of my questions is, do you think about the story? Like, do you put attention to the story or do you just go with the feeling in the moment? there's very very little thinking. I think at this stage in our work with it, because it's been decades now, for me, it's definitely a feel in the body. I often forget the story. What I try to hold on to more is the score. So for me, it's about holding the form almost, holding the energy around what's the what's the practice I am practicing right now. Am I in a journey? Am I in a fairy tale score or am I in that? So if there is any thinking at all, it's about holding that 
form and then just feeling into what my movement response is and then, you know, just moving it. And because we've practiced it for so long, we've come up with our basic rules. Uh, one of the rules we've come up with is the only prop we ever use is dancing color scarves because scarves can feel like a weight. They can be light. They can be connection. So they're very unformed. And for us, that's very important because people get incredibly literal. Even if they have dance experience, they think, oh, I'm on a journey, so I have to carry the suitcase. So there's this, you know, literalness. And I mean, certain literal gestures certainly can be useful, but we have found that they take away totally because you don't get into what's really going on here. What's really this emotional or story that's underneath that it can go deeper. So that's one of the things. Another part is less is more. So they're brief improvisations. Well, what we have found in workshops, even with dance therapists, is they'll go on and on and on and on in movement. And then you're like, well, where's the story? You know, it's like too much movement. So we work on how do we just distill it, make the shape, and end it. So am I missing? Well, the projection is the other idea, is that we really do want the people in the audience to allow their own active imagination to be able to join with the stories. So that means that the, 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 we're trying to, to pare back a lot of the technique of the dance technique, meaning we don't care about what pirouettes, or we don't care about big, huge lifts or, or huge, wonderful contact uh, duets or any of that. It's more about having it be an interactional, uh, physically felt event that is clear to an audience so they can see. Mm-hmm. So they well, don't have to be trained dancers, no. but just comfortable enough with improvisation. Yes. Sometimes we see, you know, one of the improvisation pieces is holding stillness and holding stillness long enough so that image it registers with the audience because that makes such a difference. You don't want a big mess at the end. You want to be able to do your improv and then just hold it. Hold a pose. Yeah. And you know, breathe through it because it's what we found was a long time ago, we were in Boston and we did a poetry therapy conference and somebody was talking about, this was the closure of the conference about a dead dog dying. And I remember we got into this pose and I remember feeling like it was being held forever, forever. (laughs) But people in the audience were like weeping and it was mm. like, oh, wow, we didn't really have to do very much because they're very warmed up. But holding that moment was absolutely essential for their experience. So what we're aiming for is this physical communication that is beyond literal, beyond concrete and a physical connection because the physical communication, physical, emotional communication is so important. Uh, that's why we're trying to script the, the, the dancing and the performances from being too technique-oriented, being too verbal-oriented, being too uh, concrete-oriented, because that all distracts from the physical felt part. Uh, so the scores are things like just a simple solo. So a story that has 20 or 30 people with lots of twists might be said, well, let's just see this as a solo. So the solo dancer would take on that task with the idea being that the solo movement 
is can capture the the gist of the emotional felt part rather than trying to reproduce each one of the simple concrete parts of the narrative. An example of this is a a, um, a research project that a colleague of mine and I were doing in New Zealand around uh, investigating youth suicide in New Zealand, which is a hugely emotional topic. And he and I were invested in this because we were seeing and doing risk assessments and uh, safety plans on a daily basis. And it was tearing us up. Um, the idea was we would tell specific stories about what it was like in the day-to-day clinical world, and we would see them in stories. And we would do this over uh, four or five hours and look and see how the um, the stories developed. Well, we started off with two stories that were prepared, and then we, he and I went back and forth. But the very first story was this. My colleague had a um, client who was, she's 15, 16, who had fell into a, a suicidal uh, funk, if you will, wanted to kill herself in response to a suicide that she had heard in the community. And it was a very complicated case. So uh, the way that we set this up was a solo dancer and a scarf. And as the dance developed between the dance and the, the movement and the scarf, we all could see aspects of uh, not only just the, the girl, but the girl and her family, the girl in the community, the girl and the whole idea of killing herself, or the girl and and the contagion of this event. And the dance said it better than any uh, research or case study or, or uh, other verbal means. Anyway, there's another score of three stops. So Connor developed it. You get three dancers and take a shape in the space without knowing who's going to start or who goes next. And we, uh, each person produces a short dance and a stop. Each, you get three different scenes. And there's often fit stories, uh, the narrative, if you have a beginning, middle, and end. Or if you have sort of a beginning, the theme or the conflict, and then what's the future or what's next? Mm-hmm. That can be decided in the moment. Like, we don't know which mover is going to be which part. Right. Okay. And that's to make it be more alive and improvisational. Mm-hmm. And when you're stopped, you're not just taking shape. You are alive. You're just not moving. So you can respond to your fellow dancer. So one person takes focus. And they only uh, move one time. Yes. Okay. So a, in the suicide project, uh, I had a, a, a client once who was, whose brother had just committed suicide. She then was very afraid of her young son committing suicide. He was seven. So we the begin the the first part was her experience of her brother's suicide, her fear fear of suicide with her son, and then what's the future going to be? And so in looking at that, we could again begin to, to investigate or watch or experience the, the passing of this. And the idea of three stops is you get three separate scenes. In general, what movement will do if you just give three people a chance without stopping to move, they're just gonna look the same unless they're incredible improvisers. However, if you introduce a stop or a stillness, then there is a complete different change of dynamic. And that's the, that's the improvisational task. And the watchers can observe the story as it moves. Uh, Steve used to like it, call it a moving Rorschach test, you know, <laughs> like really being able to visually you know, you just start to project and see what you see and notice what story comes up for you and how it changes and how that mover becomes this or that or 
whatever. Yes. Mm-hmm. Then there's there's another score which is a, a duet that starts off as set up to be one person moving and the other person essentially behind that person doing a shadow movement, but then it evolves in some way. Usually this this is a great score to fit with an internal conflict of sorts. Uh, or something in where one is talking to oneself or dealing with oneself. Mm. We try to, to stay away from, say, well, uh, my partner and I had this fight. We probably cast that in another way rather than do the duet with it. Again, it's more to try to beat the, and like get away literal, from literal, the role yeah. and the yeah. concrete part, because we really do want to get the physical aspects of this. But right. the idea of you know, I woke up this morning, I was caught in my thoughts, and I just kept thinking about this. So we might set that one up as a duet. So we Someone's the mover and someone else is moving the thoughts. Well, then it changes. I mean, because dance has this ability to, you, you sort of lose the idea of who's who in this. Right. And, and we're trying to focus on the, the improvisational part to investigate that. So there's not a preset answer. The improvisation itself will offer a new view of this. And it sounds like what's important is the people who are viewing it, what their projection is. And remember, everybody's going to have their own story. So the movers who are moving are going to have some sense of a story about their own thing or maybe the story they heard. The the audience is the same way. They're going to be either trying to feel into that story that they just heard or maybe they're like, oh, my gosh, this is like when my father and I blah, 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 or, you know, whatever. So. I guess what it is, is the space to have the collective story, but then the individual within the collective. And, you know, dance is such a beautiful metaphoric holder, can hold so much. Because once we can move past the literal, we can get to so many layers and levels. We can, you know, get to an archetypal theme, or we can get, you know, some kind of universal theme, or we can get to that you know, really fine-tune that story everybody has with their relationship with their partner or, you know, whatever. So there's so much richness in us moving a story to be able to hold so much more than just verbally articulated. And remember, culturally, we have told stories for generations. And this is just another Mm -hmm. way of continuing that legacy of how do we tell and hold stories. Uh, before there was the written word, there was stories. Right. And so how do we, you know, continue that? So it's just another way of looking at that process. Well, particularly offering the physical part. Yes. Offering right. physical improvisation just is so different than telling a verbal story. Right. And I like what you said about how, you know, we used to tell stories even before we had the written word or the vocabulary that we have now. So it's going back way, way long time ago that in that collective unconscious can come up in the moment. The last score that we've come up with is something called the fairy tale. And usually the ones that are most complex and emotionally quite trying. And so anyway, usually it's just the score is set up with either one or two dancers, quite possibly three, but, but no more than that. And then another dancer is actually improvising a fairy tale. Well, so a verbal fairy tale, well, in response to the, the dancers. So it's not a response mm. necessarily as a starting place to the story. So uh, usually the fairy teller will say something about a separation. Uh, so once 
in a time so long ago that no one can even remember. There was, and that would be the beginning. And then the fairy teller uses the music, the, the movement as a source of imagery. So there's a conversation between the dancer and the storyteller. And so it often goes with dance as some story, dance, some story. And the fairy teller has to watch, uh, is, is totally improvising. You don't know the end. And so there is this collaboration. And again, it's a way of generating imagery embedded with the movement uh, in response to then a more literal story. So to go back to our uh, the example of the suicide project, um, so we are so curious in that New Zealand is this seen as this in all the the I don't travel um, what do you want to call it sur- surveys the place that's the most happiest in the world and yeah. the best place to go or something like that. So here is this paradox that didn't make sense in that we were dealing daily with the, the dark side. And we also have the, if not the highest, the second highest rate of youth suicide in the world or in the developed world. So at the very end, um, we set up a, a fairy tale score where uh, Connor and an, another dancer were doing a duet and I responded in, in a fairy tale on uh, the, the imagery. And because New Zealand is so, so built on bicultural uh, myths. So, uh, in my mind, I knew that I wanted to do something with water in the island. And there was this strong, the fairy tale basically is that the, the island was, was swirling in the waters and there was a strong need to um, communicate. And so someone was the, reaching as, as far as they could into the swirling waters to reach out for something. Our colleague is now a CBT professor and uses this as an example of saying, this is a way to ask the best questions, to go from this now to start to ask, you know, questions that CBT has never come close to even beginning to, to ask. What was um, the question that came up from that example? Well, and that's his, he and his, his colleagues are now developing those. So it's still in process. Okay. It gave, but it gave him as a CBT professor and therapist a way to start to reconceptualize and rethink about um, the self-destructive emotional process of adolescence. And so he, I trust, will now take it into produce, you know, his kind of research in a way that he would have never thought of. Um, an example of the end, end product, was, we're sort of doing a quote, quote, spoiler alert, if you will, about our project in China. We will, we will uh, publish this. And we hope if you're, if you get the journal, you'll be able to see this particular dance. But at, at the, the dancing had been going sort of downhill, if you will. I mean, we're expressing lots of, mistrust, uh, the, the themes of fear of the future, death, witnessing a slow death of our culture, uh, you know, that kind of, those kinds of stories. And the dancing had really uh, expressed that, even though it was done very beautifully, it was quite succinct to all of this. So then um, uh, we had a, a, an American colleague who produced and said, well, there's got to be some Maybe now we have to take a risk and develop some other a third political party or a third way politically. And um, uh, she chose two uh, Chinese dancers who, by the way, didn't understand any English. And the score was they would do a duet and I would do the first response as a, a fairy teller in English. And then they would do part two and have uh, our Chinese colleague tell a fairy tale in Mandarin. 
And the dancing became this highly edgy improvisation that was beautiful. And every moment was not only physically threatening, meaning jumping in each other's arms, that kind of thing, but but the as an improvisation, no one knew where it was going to go. And the, these uh, young men were quite adept. One, where they were very good improvisers, but they kept pushing themselves. Mm-hmm. And so that the fairy tales reflected this kind of struggle and started off being kind of a struggle of how they get together and how they find themselves to uh, finally finding a true friendship at the end. So the, the end result of, of our days together was this relief. Oh my gosh, the answer, of course, is our own personal creativity. But you would have never have gotten there had we not gone through the day. And even when I'm saying this, you will not get the same feeling as because you weren't witnessing the, the dance. And we really did have to trust that the theme of the dance was about trust and creativity. But my God, we were, you know, we had half an hour to go and everyone was sort of, oh, my God, this is, you know, we live in a horrible world kind of feeling. And then this dance occurred. So even on a, a individual level, say, with a, in a family therapy setting that is highly broken down, and you only do a little bit. And I might dance a young boy's uh, uh, anger and use that as a way to to communicate with he and his parents. That's the thing that, that hooks it all together is there's a communication on a improvisational, creative, bodily felt uh, level that seems to, to be the trick or that, that seems to be the, the thing that we're after and we, we kind of keep working towards. Yeah, that sounds like an amazing approach. We've talked about the more grand ideas, um, uh, but we both teach dance therapy now in China. And because uh, English is not the first language, uh, we often use physical storytelling to teach concepts. So mother-child attachment, things like that. Hmm. We'll do, set up a dance and have the dance do, here's the concept, okay, let's dance. it, And then use that as a way to forward uh, the lesson. Cool. That's fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing your work. Okay. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like to be updated on the giveaways and any kind of special updates, please visit the Facebook page. It's called Mind Your Body. And uh, subscribe to our mailing list at mindyourbodydmt.com. And there you'll find my services that I'm offering, which are therapy and supervision, and a contact form if you need to get in touch. See you next time.